morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you. Uh, hello to those of you on our online campus. Thanks for participating through that venue and in our parent viewing rooms. Uh, that's a great option if you do have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, man, what a beautiful spring day it is. Woo! <laughs> Uh, you can, uh, somebody mentioned earlier, you can, you can almost see the grass growing in front of you. Uh, that's, a, that's a great perspective. So uh, I got to say a couple of quick things before we jump into the talk today. Uh, I want to tell you a story. I have a, a friend who goes here, uh, who participates in a part of our church family uh, named Diane. And uh, several months ago, uh, Diane went to visit her friend Don, who lives in Missouri. And so uh, she went down there and uh, was just kind of hanging out and happened to be there over a weekend. And as she was there, Dawn looked at Diane and said, hey, which service are we watching? She said, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, you've been talking about this church you've been going to. And so I've been watching it. And now I feel like Westbridge is my church. And so I've been watching every weekend and I'm a part of Westbridge as well. And she was like, what? That's crazy. And so they participated in our online uh, uh, campus that weekend together. And then uh, when we did water baptism several weeks ago, Dawn drove up from Missouri so that her and Diane could get baptized together here in person. Isn't that awesome? So Dawn, if you're watching, shout out to you. Uh, to Dawn in Missouri. I think that's so cool. And uh, she's actually going to be back visiting again with us in person. So I just love that. I think that's so awesome. So I want to encourage you with this. If you have uh, not been uh, made the decision to follow Jesus' example in water baptism, I think it's a great next step if you've made a decision to follow Jesus. And here's why I say that. It's not because um, water baptism is not a graduation ceremony. It's not like, uh, okay, you are, you are now officially Jesus Jr. Here's your badge and you come up out of the water and, you know, a little halo starts floating over your head and angels start floating around you. And, you know, in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's really a, a way to say, I, I've crucified the old me. And the language that the Apostle Paul uses is that uh, the old me gets buried in a, a watery grave. And so that's very symbolic of going into the water as saying, I'm burying the old me. And then just as Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to rise to new life. And, and because of him, I, I can live out this new identity. And so uh, it doesn't mean you're never going to uh, make, it doesn't mean you're never going to like mess up or sin again, or like you're going to, you know, you've attained perfection or sainthood or anything like that. It just means, man, I'm dependent on Jesus and this new identity as I move forward. So I want to encourage you, uh, we're doing it on a, a worship night. So we're going to have a whole night at the end of this series. So we'll do the whole Creed series. And then on May 22nd, we'll wrap up that series. And then that night, we will do a whole night of worship, music, communion, and water baptisms. And that's it. And so I would love for you to sign up for that, participate in that. And uh, it would be my honor to baptize you uh, when you sign up. So uh, there you go. Uh, hope that uh, you'll take that into consideration and you have a few weeks to sign up. When I was in uh, second grade, I lived in Wells, Minnesota. And uh, you're like, where, where is Wells, Minnesota? It's, it's pretty close to Iowa. And, uh, and I lived there for several years as a kid. And I have a very vivid memory of a kickball game that went down at Wells Easton uh, School in second grade. And uh, it was a game where somebody, and this probably never happened to you, but uh, somebody claimed to have tagged someone with a ball. And the person who supposedly, allegedly got tagged, claimed to have not gotten tagged. And then, you know, as second graders do, there was a big fight that kind of broke out and it was like cleared the dugouts, you know, and uh, everybody's yelling at each other. And the teacher had to step in. Miss Doble was my second grade teacher and she was awesome. And she had to step in and like intervene or else, you know, it was, it was going to get uh, pretty ugly. And it makes me wonder what would have happened if she hadn't stepped in and intervened. I feel like that would have been a second grade, you know, 
version of West Side Story somewhere along the way. Like, we were getting, we were ready, you know? Like, I was like, here we go. And uh, it's interesting, even as an adult, uh, when I go onto social media, it's like not a lot has really changed. There are still people on different sides shouting at each other over everything. And it just social media today feels a lot like an adult kickball game without an umpire. Like everybody's just fighting over it. Everybody's got their opinion. Everybody's mad. Everybody's yelling. Everybody wants their own way. In fact, we live in a culture right now that feels a lot like an adult kickball game without an umpire. And everybody's screaming at each other. There's a verse out of Judges uh, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, and it talks about this time in the history of the nation of Israel where uh, it, it was kind of like very, very similar to the culture we live in. In fact, the way it's described it in Judges 21, it says, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now think about that. Everyone just did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That is a recipe for disaster. It's kind of like this picture of a guy that I saw recently that someone shared online. Check this out. It's unbelievable. Just let that picture be a gift to you today. Because I would love to know the decision tree that went into this. By the way, you can't see it super clearly, but he's juggling pins at the beach. And I just want to know, like, he woke up and he looked and he goes, what should I wear today? Shorts? Yes. Hmm. Which ones? The tight, short, striped ones. Absolutely. Shirt? No, no, no. No shirt. No, no. How about shoes? The Dayglo runners. Yes, I'm going to do that. And what about socks? The short black cutoffs. The business socks, right? Because we got a meeting later. And uh, let's start the day at the beach juggling pins. And I saw this picture that someone posted and I was like, apparently there are way fewer rules than anyone ever told us. There's way more freedom than you ever imagined possible. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, that's pretty harmless when you're talking about what to wear that day, right? Pretty harmless stuff. But what about when it comes to truth or morality? Does it just work to do whatever you want to do in your own eyes? Because that's basically the culture that we live in today. The culture that we live in, everyone kind of does what's right in their own eyes. Our mantra has become, you do you. All right? Just, just live your truth. And who gets to decide what truth is and and. Who gets to decide what is true? Well, you have a few options. One is that you get to decide. That's an option in our culture today. Uh, you get to decide what truth is. That's kind of become our default setting. In fact, uh, you hear uh, people say things like, well, what's true for you may not be true for me. And I'm not so sure that's how truth works. I don't think it works that way, right? If you and I both jump out of an airplane with no uh, parachute, guess what? What's true for you is absolutely true for me. It's just across the board, that's just how it works. Or we say, speak your truth or live your truth. But just as an exercise in pure logic, the minute that you put your or a pronoun in front of truth, it's no longer truth, it's just opinion. And we say, well, just do what makes you happy, which means whatever makes me happy in the moment must be true. So I get to decide my own code of ethics and my own morality. If I say it's true, then that means I'm right and you're wrong unless you agree with me. And you can just... That's one way to kind of live your life. Whatever I determine to be true is true. Another way is uh, just the most current trends. Let that define truth for you. If 51% of Americans think something, then it must be true. And uh, my personal experience seems to be that, you know, the backup, uh, what the majority of people think about this topic, so it must be true. And then all of a sudden, if, if that shifts, well, suddenly it's not true anymore. But our experiences have shown us that history is never really kind to trendy truth. 
the truth that just kind of comes and goes with the trends. And so just because a majority of people think something or believe something doesn't automatically make it true. And that's why we're doing this series. That's why this series, uh, Creed, is such an important series for us as a church. Because as divisive and as chaotic and as tumultuous as our current culture is, uh, the truth is those who lived in the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries faced many of the same difficulties. They faced many of the same challenges to the things that they believed to be true. And so uh, the Apostles' Creed was developed as a way to provide a foundation of truths upon which followers of Jesus could actually build their faith, especially in, a, in an era in human history where uh, many people were illiterate or they did not have access to the eyewitness accounts and to the scriptures the way that we have them today. And so these truths have become the foundation of the universal church for the last couple thousand years as we continue to strive for unity around these big ideas. And we said this last week uh, as a reminder, when it comes to these essential beliefs, these core doctrines, we strive for unity. But in non-essential things, there's liberty. But in all of our beliefs, we show love no matter what. And if we don't do that, then the tendency for us is to want to weaponize beliefs to use against other people. And the reality is that any, any truths that we find are really much, much better when we use them as a mirror than as a microscope. It's much better to reflect on them for our own lives than to use them to peer into the lives of others. And so uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Scriptures work much better when used as a mirror than when used as a microscope. Now, uh, we, we've been uh, walking through this. We started this last week. I want to encourage you, uh, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to check it out. But here's the Apostles' Creed, and it's on the back of your outline. It'll be on the back of your outline each week. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting." And again, last week, we explored the first couple lines of this. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and I would encourage you to check that out if you missed that. Today, we're going to dive into the next part of the creed, and we're going to discuss the statements that are made about Jesus in particular, and why our understanding of Jesus is so foundational to our faith. And so it talks about this idea that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. And so... First thing, right off the bat, Jesus is God revealed. So I don't have to wonder. I don't have to wonder. This, is, this claim is where Christianity departs from so many other world religions and their ideas about God. Because most of all other world religions have this idea that you've done something wrong, you've missed the mark, you've committed sin, and as a result of that, now there's the things that you have to do to somehow get to God, to atone for your sins, to appease the wrath of whatever deity you perceive to be running the universe. And this is where, uh, you know, Christianity or the message of Jesus takes such a sharp left turn and, and departs from all other world religions. Christianity stands alone. The message of Jesus stands alone in saying, this isn't about what you do to get to God. This is what God has done to come to you. It, it, and God became one of us. Christianity stands alone in saying, God made the move in our direction to have a relationship with us. And if you want to know what God is like, if you've ever wondered what is God like, you simply must look at Jesus. 
Jesus is the human incarnation of who God is. And that's why in the creed, it says this, I believe Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we celebrate that section of things a lot more during the Christmas season as we talk about Advent and we talk about Jesus being born and, you know, Mary and Joseph. But the reality is this claim, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, is a statement about the incarnation and the divinity of Jesus. It's saying that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And, and if you're like, well, I don't understand that, uh, like, join the club. That is, that's tough to wrap your brain around. But that, the idea is that uh, God actually became uh, uh, incarnate through a human. And so he's fully God and fully human, fully divine, fully human. And Mary is honored, but she is not to be worshipped. That isn't the point of the creed. The creed is saying she's to be honored. That, that's the way that Jesus came into the world. And the clear claim of scriptures, as recorded by multiple eyewitnesses, is that Jesus actually gives you and I the clearest picture of what God is actually like. That if we are to wonder what God is like, we look to Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself made this claim about himself, and he actually affirmed that when other people made the claim about him as well. In Matthew chapter 16, Matthew records this for us. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin who had already died. Uh, they're saying, some, some say that you're the, the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And so Jesus is saying, I... That's what I am. I am God revealed. You don't have to wonder what God is like. I, I am God in the flesh. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. In fact, the apostle Paul would later write this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. The scriptures affirm over and over and over again that there are not a lot of images of God, but that there is simply one image of God, Jesus God looks like Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said, I am, I am the only way to the Father, which means don't go any other place to find out what God is like other than the person of Jesus. For followers of Jesus, we have to lock that in. God looks like Jesus. That's what God looks like. And so the question each of us needs to wrestle with is this. Okay, so who is Jesus to me? Is Jesus, uh, many people believe Jesus is just a myth, a kind of make-believe or made-up figure and the idea is that, okay, we, we came up with this to kind of control the masses. And the truth is, uh, not, uh, not to be insulting, but that's a, it's a, a somewhat uneducated view of Jesus, only because there is no scholar in any field of study that would deny the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone agrees uh, that at least in the historicity of Jesus, his ancient writings, even outside of the scriptures, no one denies the existence of this Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the first century. But some believe he's just a historical figure. Okay, he existed, but he's not God in the flesh. 
I'm sure he's a real person and he had a following and he probably taught some great things and, you know, had good teachings on love, but he's definitely not God or Savior or King. And to those who think that way, he's basically kind of like George Washington, right? He's a, he's a historical figure, but his relevance in my life today doesn't have a lot of significance. Or some people believe he's a religious figure. He's a helper. He's kind of a good add-on, someone to kind of, you know, maybe go to every once in a while and kind of a, uh, a higher power or a force or something that I pray to every once in a while when I need some help or, you know, when the lights go on behind me and I've got to pull over and it's like, oh, Lord, please help me, you know. Rocket prayer to Jesus. He's this cosmic helper that gets you through life, but he's definitely not king or ruler of your life, definitely not someone that you'd build your life around or submit your life to or bring everything under your life, uh, in your life under his authority. And then, to some, he's the risen son of God. And this is the claim that the creed makes based on the scriptures, reflecting the truth of scriptures. If you believe the accounts of the more than 500 eyewitnesses, then Jesus isn't a myth or a historical figure, figure or even just a religious helper. Jesus is actually the incarnate Son of God. He's come to us in human form to reveal God's love to us. So the offer that's on the table through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is that there's a better king than you. And there's a bigger God than you. There's a better king than me and a bigger God than me. And there's a loving heavenly Father who sent his Son into the world to reveal what God is truly like to show us his love. And when you look at what God is like as revealed in Jesus, you discover God is love. That is what Jesus reveals about this God. And here's the next statement about Jesus in the creed, and it reveals this. Jesus suffered and died so that I don't have to. Not only did Jesus come to reveal who God is and he reveals God's love to us, he also suffered and died, which means I don't have to. If Jesus reveals what God is like, then never do we see more clearly the love of God than through the sacrificial love of Jesus. We see it through his sacrificial death. The cross of Jesus is the clearest picture of the love that God has for you and me. In fact, look at these next lines from the creed. It says, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus suffered, he died, and he was buried. And the point is that, you know, there's a, uh, there's a scene from his classic movie, The Princess Bride, where Wesley, the main character, they're like, he's dead, and they bring him to Miracle Max, and he's like, well, he's mostly dead. And they're like, mostly dead? What does that mean? And he, and he, he bakes up this chocolate-covered miracle, and then they just give it to him, and he's like, and he like wakes up again, and he's like, oh, he was just mostly dead. We missed his pulse. He's not fully dead. The point here is that... In the creed, what they're saying is Jesus died. He suffered, and then he died, and then he was buried. He wasn't mostly dead. He had died, which means he fully overcomes death. Jesus was buried in a tomb because he was fully dead. So Jesus, the incarnation of God in human form, he never sinned. He served and loved others, and he modeled what that looks like. He completely innocent. He allows himself to suffer, allows himself to be put to death, hung on a cross between two guilty criminals. And he suffers at the hands of Pontius Pilate and the power of the Roman Empire. Why? Why would he go through that? Why even do that? Why why would he do nothing and just allow that to happen? Because if the cross of Jesus is the clearest picture of who God is, then the death of Jesus brings absolute clarity to this God that we're dealing with. 
If Jesus is meant to show us the clearest picture of God, then you look at this God and what you discover is he is not the God of force and he's not the God of might and he's not the God of coercion. He is the God of humility. He is the God of love and forgiveness and light. He is the God who would rather, would rather die at the hands of his enemies than strike against them. He's the God who in his dying breath prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the God we're dealing with. In fact, one of his closest friends and followers, a guy named Peter, would later write this. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. We're meant to look at the cross of Jesus and recognize that Jesus made that sacrifice on our behalf to realize Jesus suffered so that we could be forgiven and free. It's one of the reasons why when we celebrate communion, why we do that, because Jesus instructed us, hey, every time that you break bread, every time that you receive the cup together, what you're doing is you're remembering the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's why we celebrate communion. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the picture of God that that gives us. As I think about the implications of the cross, I'm reminded of this story of a guy named Brennan Manning. Uh, Brennan Manning is a well-known Christian author and speaker who is a, a former monk. Uh, he was a laicized priest, and he wrote many books. His, his best known is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And Brennan Manning was actually born uh, Richard Xavier Francis Manning, a good Irish Catholic name for sure. And uh, he grew up in Brooklyn, New York with his best friend, Ray Brennan. And Rachel and uh, Rachel, uh, Richard and Ray did everything together. Uh, Richard and Ray grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, they, they grew up together, did everything together. They bought their first car together because neither of them could afford uh, to purchase a car on their own. And so in high school, they pooled their money and bought uh, a collective car that both of them could share and drive around. After high school, they both joined the Marines together. And shortly after they joined up, the Korean War broke out. And so they were sent into battle. And Richard and Ray found themselves fighting on the front lines of the war. And one night they were in a foxhole. The fighting had stopped uh, for the most part for the night. And they were actually passing a chocolate bar back and forth to each other in their little foxhole in their bunker. And as they're doing that, all of a sudden a grenade came and landed right in the center of their bunker. And without even thinking, Ray is holding a chocolate bar. And he looks over at Richard and he tosses him the chocolate bar. And he jumps on the grenade. And instantly, his body absorbed all of the explosion of that grenade, and he was killed instantly. And Richard, not a scratch on him. And after he got out of uh, the war and returned home, Richard went to college and then seminary, and then he entered the priesthood. And as he finished this training to become a priest, he was uh, instructed to take on the name of a saint. And as he thought about what name he would take on, he thought about his friend, Ray Brennan. And so he took the name of his friend, Ray Brennan, and he became Brennan Manning from that point on. And here's what he said when he took the name. So that every day I would remember that my life is lived because another man was willing to die. Another man was willing to lay his life down so that I might have life. That is so profound because that is exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus. This is the impact that the cross must have in our lives as well, that we recognize every day. When we look at the cross, we're to be reminded Jesus was willing to die so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have connection with God. He was willing to suffer so that we could experience freedom. 
And whatever it is that you think about God, this is the clearest picture of who God is. The cross of Jesus shows the depths that this God will go to to be reconnected and reunited and initiate relationship with you and me. And every time that we celebrate communion together, we're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and what it reveals to us about God. And then we're reminded of, uh, in the words of the creed, this third thing, Jesus is risen so I can have new life. Jesus is God revealed, so I don't have to wonder. Uh, Jesus suffered and died, so I don't have to. And now Jesus is risen so I can have new life. And, and we're reminded of this at Easter, but really this should be a reminder to us every single day that we wake up and breathe new life. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. In fact, our faith is tied directly to a person and to a single event in history. This is why the, the creed says this about Jesus. The third day he rose again from the dead. That statement is a truth that points to the eyewitness accounts and, and how many people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And that's why Paul, later on, the Apostle Paul, who is a guy who became a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you read the story of Paul, he's a guy who actually persecuted followers of Jesus, arrested them. He was so zealous against this until he met Jesus. He saw Jesus in a vision and Jesus came to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you arresting my followers? And so... Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. And over the next, uh, you know, 30 years, the Apostle Paul starts churches and travels around the Roman Empire, eventually gives his own life and is executed by the Roman Empire for following Jesus and spreading the way of Jesus. And yet here's what Paul, he writes back to a church, starts a church in Corinth, writes back to them, and he's talking to them about the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to read some of these verses together. This is a long chapter. Uh, it's a great chapter to read if you want to. There's 58 verses in this chapter that Paul writes, but I want to highlight some of them. He says this, If Christ had never been raised, then the message we tell is worth nothing, and your faith is worth nothing. He says, now think about this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all the faith that you have in Jesus is actually useless. It's pointless. It's a joke. You're building your life on a sinkhole and it's going to collapse. You should just rip up the scriptures and rip up the eyewitness accounts because if it didn't really happen, then everything you're building your life on is actually false. And then he continues. He says, if Christ had not been raised from death, then your faith is nothing. You're still guilty of your sins. In other words, you believe in Jesus and you follow Jesus because he rose from the dead. And because of that, you believe him when he says that you have forgiveness of sins, that you can enter into eternal life. But if Jesus never rose from the dead, then that means that everything that he taught and everything that he said is a lie as well. And that means that you're still guilty of your sins. And you're still facing the consequences for your old way of living. That means when you, when you were baptized, you were baptized into nothing. You buried yourself in just a puddle of water. It doesn't mean anything. He continues, he says, uh, you know, if, uh, if our hope in Christ is only for this life here on earth, then people should feel more sorry for us than for anyone else. Paul says, if the only benefit you get from following Jesus is in this current life, and there isn't actually hope for eternity, then what are we doing? People should feel sorry for us. We're doing a bunch of stuff that we think carries with it eternal weight, that we think carries with it you know, uh, implications in eternity, only to discover that it's all temporary things. People should feel sorry for us. People should feel sorry for those of us who give out of what God's entrusted to us financially, week after week after week, thinking that we're somehow investing in something eternal. People should feel sorry for us. People should laugh at us. People should feel sorry for those of us who volunteer and give our time and serve others. 
People should feel sorry for those of us who uh, are working through a difficult season in marriage. There's no eternal implication to that, so you should just live for the moment, right? People should feel sorry for those of us who are working hard to forgive someone else. People should feel sorry for those of us who give up time and resources to build God's church. He says if it's all temporary, then people should really feel sorry for us because we're pouring all this time and energy and effort and, and into something that we think has all these eternal implications only to discover Jesus, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then none of that's true. What a joke our life is. And then he says, if we are not raised from death, let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. In other words, if we have no hope of being raised from the dead, as Jesus promises, if, if it's really just all there is to this life is this life, and we have no hope of eternity, then we should just eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. This is the Apostle Paul quoting Dave Matthews in the first century. It's amazing. And it's a great verse. He says, look, if Jesus is dead, then he actually didn't defeat sin and death which means all there is to this life is this life, which means, really, you should spend your time feasting and indulging all of your desires. That's what you should do. It's only the reality that Jesus is actually alive and that there's something for me for eternity that makes me go, man, you know what? I got to put down this wild turkey leg and find my pants. It's like, like oh, otherwise, I may as well just live for myself for the moment, right? If there's no living Jesus and there's no promise of eternity and there's no one to be accountable to, then I got some sinning to do. I may as well just be feasting and indulging my desires every day. That's what Paul is saying. If there's no resurrection, then we're just wasting our time. We're just, we should just serve ourselves. If Jesus hadn't raised from the dead, then it doesn't matter how practical or how helpful or how useful Christianity is or how it makes you feel. It's useless without the resurrection. It makes everything else, the whole foundation is that Jesus actually overcame death, and so when he promises eternal life, it's something he can deliver. One of the awe-inspiring marvels of the modern world is something called Costco. I mean, it's incredible, right? I mean, you can buy enough food to feed an army in one cartful, and uh, you get to eat snacks while you're shopping. It's amazing. And at Costco, after you pay for your items, it's really important that you hold on to what? The receipt. That's right, because uh, it, it, the receipt is so important because you got, you know, this three cartfuls of stuff or whatever, and, and, uh, and you're, you know, you're coming back tomorrow. And basically, the receipt is what gets you out of the building, right? Even though you've already paid for everything, the receipt is the verification. The receipt is what lets you know that all this stuff has been verified, that you've actually paid for it before you leave the store. Think of the resurrection of Jesus as the receipt, it's the verification, right? The cross is the payment. Jesus said, it's finished. It's already done, but we owe nothing. But the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of purchase that we are forgiven and that we are free. And so the question that every one of us needs to wrestle through in our own minds is this. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And I believe that the answer to that is yes. I believe that because, not because the Bible tells me so, there's a great, you know, sort of old children's song. I'm sure many of you have heard it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's a great, great song. It's a, it's a cute song. But the reality is, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead simply because the Bible tells me so, as if the Bible is this um, thing removed from human history that God handed us down from heaven bound in leather with gold leaflets. The truth is, the Bible exists because of eyewitness accounts. In fact, for the first 300 plus years, 
there were tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus and there was no Bible. It's so much better than the Bible tells me so. It's because there were eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die and then they saw him alive and they wrote about their experiences. And eventually those experiences that they wrote about were copied and they were put together and eventually that became what we now today call the Bible. But they didn't believe it because there was a group of sacred writings that told them, hey, you should probably believe in this guy, Jesus. They believed in Jesus because they saw him. They saw him die and they saw him rise from the dead and they wrote about their experiences and they shared them and those things got copied and distributed all across the Roman Empire and eventually in the fourth century they were finally put together and bound into one edition. But I, I actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead because John saw him and wrote about it. Because Peter saw him and wrote about it. Because Matthew saw him and wrote about it. Because Luke interviewed so many of the eyewitnesses and put together a chronological account of the life and teachings of Jesus and his death and resurrection. Because so many eyewitnesses saw him and wrote about it. James, his own brother, saw Jesus and wrote about it. And they were all put to death because of that belief. They were all at some point executed. Every one of Jesus' followers, except for John, every one of them was executed for what they claimed to have believed that they saw and they experienced. And I, I got to wonder, they had seen Jesus put to death, they had seen him alive again, and I don't think that many people would willingly die for something that they knew to be a lie. And if you arrive at that conclusion, then our faith is not a waste. Our faith is not empty. And every time that you give and every time that you serve and every time that you volunteer and every time that you forgive someone who's hurt you and every time that you work through a season in your marriage, every time that you uh, do everything that you can to live out the way of Jesus, there is actually a foundation for that. There's substance to that. And you share your life in community and you resist temptation. Your faith is growing on something of substance. That's why at the end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, this, this last verse, verse 58, the Apostle Paul wraps up his thoughts on the resurrection and he says this. So, in, in light of all this stuff that I've just written, my dear brothers and sisters, stand strong. Don't let anything change you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You know that your work in the Lord is never wasted. He says, you can have confidence that when you do these things, it's actually built on something because Jesus actually is God revealed. We don't have to wonder. Actually, he, he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, so he, he suffered so we don't have to. He suffered and died so we don't, we don't have to experience the full weight of the consequence of our sins. And then Paul says it, it gets so much better. He rose from the dead. And now we can experience freedom. And so every time that you give and serve and love, man, you're doing it based on the resurrection of Jesus. And for those of us who do believe, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for who we are, for how we believe, and for how we live our lives. Because what happened to Jesus physically in the resurrection is the same thing that happens to us every single day. We can be resurrected to new life. We are followers of Jesus who live a new and resurrected life. Paul, Paul at one point writes, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you gives strength to your body every single day. And so, Jesus is God revealed. He suffered and died. He rose from the dead. And number four, Jesus ascended so I can have confidence. Ascended, that just means Jesus returned. He, he uh, you know, there's a, the eyewitness accounts that Paul talks about. 
at the end of the, um, the book of Luke, the, Luke is giving an account. He's interviewed all these eyewitnesses. You, just, you read these stories from these eyewitness accounts, and it says that they, they look up into the sky, and Jesus is ascending. And they go, and Jesus said, one day I'm going to return. And they went, is he, is he coming back? He said he was coming back. He said he was going to return. And eventually, I don't know how long it was, but you read this story, and it says angels appeared, and they go, why are you guys looking up into the sky? He's going to return, but, you know, go, go live out the way of Jesus. And it's fascinating. Jesus returns to heaven. He ascended into heaven. That's why the creed says this. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We're told throughout the New Testament, throughout the eyewitness accounts by the Apostle Paul and other authors of other letters, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. He came to earth, revealed God's heart, suffered on our behalf, and then uh, was uh, put to death and resurrected. And now he returns to take his rightful place as a part of this triune God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, the author of Hebrews describes it this way. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. Well, that makes sense. There's a priest, and the priest is the go-between between between me and God, and and then uh, I make a sacrifice, and the priest administers that sacrifice, and now me and God are good. But then eventually that priest dies, and so there has to be a new priest, and i got to keep offering sacrifices. So that's what this author is describing. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Now, you, you don't need this constant go-between, right? Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Well, what does that mean? That word intercede comes from two Greek words that actually just mean go-between. In, in other words, Jesus is the forever go-between. When someone intercedes for you, they're the go-between. When you, when you say, hey, I really need you to speak on my behalf to someone else, they are interceding for you. They are the go-between for you and someone else. And these verses are written to remind us that humans used to offer sacrifices. That, that was the old way, through a priest, to obtain right standing with God. But that priest would die. They would sin again. The new priest would come into office. But because Jesus rose from the dead, his sacrifice is good for all time. Good for all time. And while the word, uh, you know, there's a word that we use in modern times, and really it's, it's an, a Hebrew word, Satan. And that word interpreted in the English really just means accuser. The role of Satan is actually to accuse us before God. To go before God and say, hey, don't you remember who these guys are? Don't you remember how many times they've sinned? Don't you remember how many times they've missed the mark? Don't you remember the thoughts that they've had? <coughs> Excuse me, the things that they would never want broadcast? Don't you remember who these people are? But Jesus then is interceding for us, meaning he's the go-between for us. What does that mean? This is just a, a picture. This just gives us verbiage that when God looks at you and when God looks at me, he doesn't look at us through the lens of our accuser. He looks at us through the lens of his son. When God looks at you and God looks at me, he doesn't look at us through the lens of the accuser and doesn't look, oh, that, those are just some sinners that I got to deal with. That's not how God sees us. God looks at us through the lens of his crucified and resurrected son. That's that's the lens through which God looks at you and me. So now when he looks at you and me, he sees a son and a daughter. That changes everything. That's amazing news. And and, and I know that you may have some reasons why you don't think that's true. 
Maybe you're watching online, you're exploring faith for the first time, and, uh, and I don't know why everyone, even if you have some uh, valid reasons, and, and if you are like, man, I just can't get there, I can't believe that that's true, my guess is you have some really valid reasons of why you don't believe that's true. My guess is if I'd experienced some of the things you'd experienced, I, I would be there probably in your shoes as well. But here's what I don't understand is why everybody wouldn't want that to be true. That's such good news. When the God who created the universe looks at you, he looks through the, the lens of his son, Jesus, who's this go-between for us and God and, and, and who is this bridge who gets us in right relationship with God. Even if, even if intellectually you're like, I got some problems, I'm, I'm struggling getting there, I don't know why deep in our hearts we wouldn't at the very least want it to be true, even while we're trying to figure out if we can get there. So let's put it all together. The incarnation of Jesus means he became human to reveal God to us. That's good news. Secondly, he suffered and died, so we don't have to. He, he, he cancels the, the consequences of, the, of our sin. The full weight of the consequences of our sins is something we don't have to experience because his sacrifice paid that for us. And then third, he rose from the dead so that we can have new life. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us, empowers us on a daily basis. And fourth, he ascended to the Father and is a constant reminder of the grace that we have in him. For followers of Jesus, this is what we hang our faith on. For followers of Jesus, this is core. This is central. This is the foundation upon which our faith is built. And uh, these essential truths, whatever else is going on in life, these are the anchors that we hold to as we sort of navigate the complexities of this life. And so here's what you need to know. You've been invited to that. You, every single person who follows Jesus is not, um, it's not something that we've behaved our way into. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that we, we don't church attend our way into it. It's, it's none of those things. It's because of the reality of the grace of Jesus, that he came, he reveals God, he suffered and died, he rose from the dead, and he returned to heaven. And that message is a message for everyone, regardless of your past, regardless of your history. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you, whether you're watching online here in the room, to say yes. It doesn't mean you have everything figured out. It doesn't mean you don't have a ton of questions along the way. It simply means that you recognize that this is the foundation. This is where it starts. And I want to begin to move in God's direction because I recognize all that he's done to move in mine. And if you want to say yes to that, just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm so grateful that you never walked away from me. And I recognize as, as we work through these, these truths, that God, you really moved in my direction. And I want to say yes to the invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me moving forward as best as I know how to trust you and to follow you with my life. And God, I pray for every single one of us who are followers of Jesus, who are doing our best to follow you. May we have the wisdom to know what that looks like, and then may we have the courage to live it out. And I pray that when seasons get tough or when we start to wonder, like, why am I doing this? Why do I live this way? May we be pointed back to these foundational truths. And may it give us, God, just the assurance that we have as a part of your family. And may our lives reflect your love and your kingdom to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.